Hello humans, my name is Jesse, aka The Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast episode 2. Hopefully you listened to Bizzlecast episode 1, in which I attempted to look critically at major movie properties and franchises and how they both are creating our post-consumerist culture where so much buying goes on that we don't even think of the consumerist aspect anymore. And I think those cases are instructive, and I genuinely like talking about them because um, I like a lot of those movies. Obviously, I hated Avatar, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag overall. But one of the main points I brought up, the apparent progressive themes in some of these movies even the big mainstream properties like Disney and other big studios, even including kids' movies like, you know, Frozen all the way back to Wally, Toy Story. If you just look at Wally, you can't even believe that Disney had the balls to put that out because Wally really <laughs> rips apart pretty much every aspect of our society as it exists now, or, or at least the the consumerist aspect. I mean, the fat people on their chairs that can't even walk around and a little basic robot more human than the humans are. But then they sell Wally toys, which end up in the garbage dump, which leads in the future to the scenario that Wally is all about. So we throw stuff on garbage piles, and then we make a movie about a cute little robot who's stuck in these garbage piles caused by these terrible, fat, lazy humans. And he and his lady teach humanity how to be human again. And we're the ones throwing the stuff on the garbage pile in the first place. In annoying philosophical language, we would call this a tautology, where everything is true, and therefore nothing is true. Thereby not refuting logic, but refusing to act within the bounds of logical thinking, where you can state multiple things as truth through an argument that rhetorically seems sound, but when you look closer, it's really just a cycle that's not a cycle, and is based on a related concept that we call circular reasoning, where the premise and the conclusion are the same thing. And in both cases, tautology is circular reasoning, essentially using the form of a logical argument, but by definition not making an actual argument because both the premises and the conclusions are flawed because they're either the same or simply repetitive. But looking back on that podcast and listening to it, it's not that I attach too much importance to post-consumerism, but I don't think I fully framed it. And... You know, that wasn't really the point of the podcast. You can only talk about so many ideas in one podcast. But it just kind of sat there to me and really made me think because that was the central underlying idea. But it's incomplete. And the reason it's incomplete is because post-consumerism, or let's just cut the lingo and just say consumerism, is a manifestation of a wide variety of factors in society. But furthermore, the psychology and philosophy that underlies 
consumerism and its modern forms and hyper-consumerism and post-consumerism or whatever you want to call it, we've basically reached the singularity version of consumerism in the sense of what makes the singularity the singularity is that while we control the development of technology for now and the foreseeable future, we can mostly predict where that technology is going. Even once we create basic AIs, and God knows there are probably more semi-advanced AIs out there than we even know about, um, which is both kind of interesting and, and piques my curiosity, but also scares me. Cyberdyne anyone? The singularity is the point, according to futurist scientists, that artificial intelligence becomes so smart that it no longer needs us, that it can self-replicate, that it can create new and advanced AI, and basically enter an evolutionary stage the way early humans did, but because of the amount of data that they can process and the information that they have access to will happen not hundreds, not thousands, but potentially millions of times faster. So if we can look at consumerism, and just stick with me here, as a form of artificial intelligence. Its early phase was in the wake of industrialization in Europe and then in North America products were being created beyond basic necessity, therefore making them luxuries. People were making money off industrialization that hadn't been making money before, who could afford these luxuries. And as the seeds of consumerism began to grow and blossom wildly in the 20th and then 21st centuries, what started to happen slowly and now more and more rapidly was and is the psychological fallout of consumerism. Not necessarily consumerism in and of itself, but the life situations and circumstances and artificial environments that come out of consumerism. And really the first guy to notice this was Sigmund Freud. And he gets a lot of flack because of some of his more controversial methods, um, you know, some of his ideas are pretty out there, but the core of his philosophy is that modern capitalism has significant psychological fallout and causes both mass and individual anxiety, and not just the diagnosable anxiety that we give out medications for, but the anxiety that every person feels no matter how emotionally balanced, from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. And although Freud's methods and some of his ideas about approaches to psychotherapy, um, I would not say have been discredited personally. Um, I guess some psychologists would say that, but um, his work is all over modern psychology. He was modern psychology but he was writing books like Civilization and Its Discontents, which is a psycho-historical look at how we got from point A to point B in terms of evolution and some ideas of the dangers that are arising out of the current global situation 
which he saw then, I'm not sure what he would think about where we've come in a hundred years. But what I think Freud and his philosophical descendants have and continue to talk about is that, yes, economics, for the most part, has determined where we are in this world, in this time, in this place, right now. But what sustains that beast, that economic engine, an economic engine that really the word economy is too limiting. I don't know if anyone's really coined a, a more kind of meta phrase, but I always look at Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, which I think a lot of you have probably read or at least know about, um, which pretty much just lays out a very scientific, extensive, but readable case about why geography and agriculture and disease essentially determine the fate of all the peoples on all the continents. Not that it was inevitable, but that the forces were there in place, that the Europeans had access to things geographically in terms of agriculture and technology that other societies didn't necessarily have. And what they didn't have, they conquered in other continents around the world to substantiate that. But to go back to Freud, he identified the anxiety, both, both physical kind of medical anxiety as well as the existential anxiety of modern and eventually postmodern culture. And of course, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Albert Camus and existentialist writers were highly influenced by Freud's view of humanity from a psychological standpoint. And their messages really haven't been addressed, or I should say their challenges haven't really been met or answered. That existentialist challenge to create meaning and one of the many side effects of an excessive consumerism, especially now when we don't even realize the all-encompassing impact of consumerism, is that it creates psychological barriers on both day-to-day -day basis and in a lifetime basis or in multiple lifetime basises, limits our options. Now, maybe we don't really have other options, even if we wanted to. And I think the scary thing is, if, if we all woke up tomorrow and everyone on the planet had sort of the consciousness and conscientiousness of the scenario that we're in, environmentally and economically, politically, militarily, and we all came together as one, what could we even do? We're so dependent on machines and technology to function on day-to-day -day life that psychologically we wouldn't even know how to handle ourselves. And I think that drives apathy, even among really smart and intellectual people. Sort of apathy out of necessity, because when you do think about those issues, it's natural for human beings who are solutions-oriented, that's part of our evolution, is to find solutions to problems. When there are no solutions that seem feasible, even in an ideal scenario, there's only so much that you can expect people to do psychologically to step out of that or present a new set of challenges or think that they even could present a new set of challenges. And the psychological toll is being manifested by massive mental illness because human brains 
especially the kind of emotional and spiritual sides of human brains, are not equipped to deal with life in 2015. And we're all trying really hard. Some of us struggle more than others. And I think there's, I know there are a lot of people suffering and struggling in silence who don't even know how to quantify this, who just have that feeling that something is off and they don't know what to do about it. The somewhat modern French existentialist philosopher, post-existentialist philosopher, whatever you want to call him, Jean Baudrillard, wrote an epic book that is extremely difficult to decode, um, even in its English translation, called Simulacra and Simulation, which was published in the 80s. But he had published numerous works, both articles and books, before and has since, all of which revolve around his central theory, which is that inquiring minds are aware that we're living in a simulation of some sort. Not so much the nefarious and impossibly invisible simulation of the Matrix, even though the Matrix was heavily um, influenced and based on simulacra and simulation. And you actually see the book at the beginning of the first Matrix movie, and the Wachowski brothers talk a lot about the influence of Baudrillard and his theory of simulations on the film. But nevertheless... Consumerism itself is a simulation, being wrapped up in stuff, whether it be clothes, or cars, or toys, or televisions. Basically items that we give meaning to, and that we give value to, based on a collective effort that's done mostly subconsciously in society. And that is what we call fetishism, and I'm not pointing any fingers here because I'm just as guilty as everyone else. Um, sort of basic, the basic notion of fetishism or fetishization is assigning meaning and value, and not just monetary value, but spiritual value or psychological value or personal value to material items that don't inherently possess them. At least with a book, there's a promise, or at least a possibility, of knowledge being contained inside. That knowledge might be useful, and if it's useful, we can still fetishize the book, whether it's the cover, or whether it's the writing style of the author, or whether we assign some deeper meaning to it than that's there, but there is something useful. Whereas a, a wedding ring, for example, um, and I think the, the notion of the wedding ring is sort of where Tolkien got the one ring concept. But essentially, that the ring has to cost a certain amount and contain certain properties. Um, with an engagement ring, that's a diamond. Uh, with a wedding ring, it's probably gold. And that somehow, between the economic value of the item and the personal and spiritual value that we assign to the item, that it somehow becomes transcendent. When really, I'm not trying to demean anyone who has wedding rings, uh, because a lot of people have wedding rings. But the point is 
we need to be able to occasionally look at those things and say that is just a piece of metal from the earth. But fetishizing is one of the earliest symbolic experiences of pre-modern people, um, assigning value to objects in order to bridge the gap between the material world and the spiritual world, as we will see. But at least the fetishization of wedding rings and items that are truly important from a life cycle standpoint, from a family and relationship standpoint, at least there... It has a functional fetishization, if you will, to it. But where things have gotten totally out of control when it comes to fetishism is with the hypermaterialism of the 21st century. But the ratio between items that we need and items we don't need has grown exponentially in the direction of luxury. And on top of that, there really are multiple classes of luxury. Um, back in the day, when you're a subsistence farmer, you could still have the occasional luxury of maybe some, you know, food stuffs that you don't normally have, or find a piece of gold or or, or jewelry or something like that. Um, but what we're dealing with now is so far beyond luxury. What we're dealing with now are items that we really don't need. These items need us more than we need them. And because of that, the only way for us to be truly convinced to buy these items and to desire these items is for those items to be given a sort of transcendent value that has nothing to do with what they are. I'm recording this on an iPhone. And I'm a big Apple guy, but it does sicken me that one of the main ways that Apple uh, advertises its product is through an almost sexual undressing of their products, whether it's an iPhone or the new MacBook Air. You have you know, bare human hands stroking it and music and lighting and it's all about how beautiful it is. And and the look of Apple products, for me, is one of the last reasons on my list of why I use them. And so I find it interesting that it's pretty well acknowledged by both PC, Android, and Mac iPhone users that Macs do a lot of things better from a purely functional standpoint than other computers or smartphones or tablets do. And yet, the crux of the advertising campaigns, the way they're displayed at Apple stores, even the way people sort of lovingly stroke their phones, Apple or not, the utility of the phone, the functionality of the phones, is still what drives sales in a big picture standpoint. In a smaller picture... The aesthetics are what draw individuals to a product for the first time. Johnny Ives, the sort of aesthetic kingpin behind all of Apple's hardware designs since the original iPod, basically, this is his entire job, is designing desirable-looking 
objects. They've got the software programmers and everyone else doing the functionalist stuff. He is all about aesthetics, and he's probably one of the highest paid people in the company. He's certainly one of the most powerful. Um, he's probably the one guy that uh, Steve Jobs didn't um, ream out on a regular basis from what we understand of Steve Jobs now because he realized that Johnny Ives' designs, for better or worse, really helped attract people to the product. And Apple's very open about wanting their products to be sexy. Um, I think they've even used that word. Um, and so this is a big problem. Um, and again, as an Apple guy, it's, it's very disturbing to me because there's so many beautiful objects out there just in nature or go to the art museum, or go see music, or even read a comic book, um, which I would consider art, but or at least good comic books, but, you know, to have to make our our cars and our computers and everything so sleek and sexy and sexual, um, this is fetishism to an extremely high degree. And this then leaves us in a situation where even those of us who want to carve out part of our life that's separate from the hypermaterialist obsession find it really hard to do so, both because that space isn't there and we don't even know how to create that space if we wanted to. I mean, I talked in the first um, Bizzlecast episode about how those of us who grew up in the 80s um, or even early 90s were kind of the guinea pigs for what's now become um, post-consumerism um, in the sense of the toy industry and the games industry and the entertainment industry for children really took off in the 80s. And so even though I think our generation has perhaps a slightly more global um, aware view of what materialism is doing to us than kids today who are playing with iPads when they're a year and a half old, it's still really hard for me to, to fully pull myself back from the materialism. And I just remember as a kid, I mean, whether you're Jewish like me with Hanukkah or Christian um, and, and celebrate Christmas, um, you know, it, it's obvious now that those holidays are, are just consumerist um, smorgasbords for, you know, corporations and the actual meaning of the holidays are pretty invisible at this point, if not dead. But growing up, there's that almost Pavlovian condition instinct when it's time for Hanukkah and you're saying the blessings, but all you're thinking about is the presents. And it really infiltrates your brain. I'm in my bedroom right now and I just have so much shit. Um, and I want to get rid of it, but I don't know what to do with it. And half the stuff, even if I wanted to get rid of it, I have some type of mental construct that is telling me that that thing is important. And it's hard to know if that mental construct is based on any sort of reality. And so it's very hard to 
create these materialist-free spaces, even if we wanted to. We all do it because we're forced to do it, because that's what you do. You try and create a life where material things can't infiltrate, but post-consumerism has reached that singularity type of level of self-perpetuation. So we don't even have control of it anymore. Even if the 20 or 50 most rich and powerful people in this country, CEOs of major companies, wanted to just create a whole new direction, or going the other way, if you just remove those 50 people all of a sudden, there would be some turmoil, but ultimately the economy in its infinite elasticity would bounce back because it's become a machine. It's become a self-perpetuating sentient machine. It's not as literally self-aware as we expect advanced artificial intelligence to become in the future or the near future, depending on your point of view. But it's reached the level of virus. It's funny that we talk about going viral all the time. Um, but the economy really is a virus. It's latched onto all of us. We're unable to detach from it, even if we wanted to. Like viruses, as opposed to bacteria, antibiotics, or whatever the sort of socioeconomic equivalent of antibiotics is, would not apply here. You just have to survive it, and it's going to keep growing, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so when Freud and the existentialist philosophers and everyone who came later tries to look at the psychological and the spiritual fallout of the global economic situation... It's interesting because if you look at the existentialist writings post-World War II by Sartre or Camus or whoever, they can see the new world coming. There's the Cold War, there's the military buildup, there are the military conflicts going around in third world countries. Um, certainly people as smart as them probably could smell consumerism, although it was in such an early phase, but... You know, history shows that brilliant philosophers generally pick up on these trends decades ahead of time, if not longer. I mean, we could argue that Plato, 2,500 years ago, predicted the democratic political predicament that all of the Western world is in, and all of the non-Western world wishes it was in, and then would have to deal with once it got there. So what's interesting about Baudrillard is that he was also an anthropologist. He spent a lot of time in the United States and wrote some pretty scathing works about consumerism in the United States. And this is going back to the 80s and 90s. So even he was a little bit ahead of the curve, at least in the advanced terms in which he was applying analysis to it. But all goes back to his idea of simulations and living in the computer age and the video game and CGI age, we know what simulations are on paper. Fighter pilots train with flight simulations. They're fake programs that are meant to replicate reality. 
in order to prepare those pilots as best as possible. But until you get into that cockpit, you really don't know what you have. Standardized testing. I mean, standardized testing is so obviously a form of simulation that it's actually... I think a level below simulation because it's meant to assess all of these skills and intelligence levels that really don't apply in the real world for the most part, but we still put a lot of stock into it. It's disconcerting enough to admit that you're in a simulation, that you have an interface with reality the way our computers and phones have interfaces. An interface on its most basic level is just a mechanism, whether it's physical or symbolic, that allows you to interact with certain types of information and or experiences that you wouldn't otherwise be able to interact with. With smartphones and computers, we use apps or applications as tools to interact with vast sums of information, to create information, to download and ingest information, to just explore it. But without those interfaces, that would never be possible. And so with the simulation, you're acknowledging that there is something between you and sort of what you want to call base layer or kind of foundational reality. For anyone who spent time backpacking or living in the wilderness or in really, really, really rural or wilderness areas, at some point during that experience and really more and more the longer the experience goes on, you realize that that's the real world in terms of where things come from. Everything that we have comes from nature in some form or another. And I'll never forget on my first long backpacking trip, senior year of high school, the end of the year, we hiked two, two and a half weeks on the Appalachian Trail in Virginia. And uh, I planned most of the trip. I was really into to hiking, backpacking, outdoor stuff at that point. And so I planned how much food we needed and where we were going to pick up food along the way. There are these little grocery stores a couple miles off the trail. And I remember we were about five to six days in, and we walked off the trail for a mile or two to this tiny little town in Virginia and went to this tiny little grocery store. I mean, it's basically, in Brooklyn, it would be a bodega. In this town, it was a small grocery store. And I was so overwhelmed with the amount of product in there. And it was not big. And after those six days, though, of not dealing with consumerism, it's amazing how much it just hits you over the head. And you realize that like a fighter pilot with his computer system on his mask, the heads-up display, we have these computer systems over our eyes, not necessarily even literal computer systems, but computer in the basic sense of computing information. And we have all these different interfaces going to try and interact with what's going on. And that's what a simulation is. But this is where it gets really scary with Baudrillard, is that 
By going back and looking at anthropological studies from the last few hundred years and beyond, he argues, and I won't go too far into the details here because it's pretty complicated, and I'll probably do a Baudrillard podcast at some point, that we are not only are we in a simulation, not only are we in a second-order simulation, where it's a simulation of a simulation, that we are actually in a third-order simulation and are on the verge of entering into orders of simulation that are nearly infinite in number. Because what happens is society keeps getting so complex, the human brain is unable to keep up with technology. We are so stressed out by our devices, we don't even realize it, we think we love them, but really, they own us, and I'm as attached to my iPhone as anyone, but it's still causing me to interact with reality in ways that are very, very far removed from reality. So the notion of simulation is connected directly with representation and symbolism. And so Baudrillard argues that early primitive human cultures were in a first-order simulation, where they were still directly connected to nature, but they created religions, spiritual traditions, and cultures, and so forth, to create meaning and purpose for the world around them when they had rational minds, but the world seems to behave irrationally. And so whether it's gods or spirits or demons or just kind of an aura or, you know, the force or whatever, that that was the first simulation. Now, according to Baudrillard, the second order of simulation is associated with the Industrial Revolution starting in the 19th century in which the distinctions between the image and the representation of an object begin to break down because of mass production and the proliferation of copies. He argues that industrial production misrepresents and masks an underlying reality by imitating it so well that it threatens to replace it. But even in the second level of simulation, Baudrillard believes we're not so far removed from the real that we can't be aware of it and that we can't critique it or take effective action against it. Now, I've written about how I think if we look at religion that the second order of simulation has other progenitors to it besides just the Industrial Revolution. So in my version, at least, the second simulation was essentially Western religion because Western religion creates a metaphysics that is apart from physics, like physics physics, like modern science physics. So it has the symbolism and the spiritual philosophies of primitive cultures, but it creates an extra barrier between real with a lowercase r and real with an uppercase r. Whereas, at least according to Baudrillard, and of course it's never this simple, but pre-modern cultures, while they did utilize symbolism, 
it was directly connected to the apparent and less apparent forces around them, whether it be the animals they hunted or the spirits that seemed to govern weather and illness and things that they didn't understand. With Christianity and a lot of major religions, it created a world beyond the world, whether it's heaven or nirvana or whatever you want to call it. Both in Baudrillard's industrial focus of dissolving the lines between image and representation uh, or thing and meaning, as well as my sort of subset of the second level simulation, which has to do with modern religions creating a distinction, especially in the West, between two different kinds of realities, the sort of fake reality of the material world and the quote-unquote true reality of God or whatever that higher spiritual transcendent plane is. Baudrillard argues that with capitalism, or at least modern global consumerist corporate capitalism, we've reached at least into a third level of simulation here, where even Christianity or religion in general are peddled on the market with everything else. So you can go to the bookstore and you can pick up a copy of Dune, which would be really smart, or you can pick up the latest trashy novel, which would probably be also pretty smart, or you could pick up a copy of some spiritual thinker, whether it's the Dalai Lama or some crazy televangelist in this country. So we've now commodified a symbolic system which was already creating a metaphysical barrier between the symbolic system and what the symbolic system was originally supposed to represent, which was nature, which was reality. But this is where things get really weird because not only are we in a phase where we can commodify not only physical goods or even services, but we can commodify symbolism in the postmodern age, we are confronted with a situation where the representation precedes and determines the real, as Faluga talks about. In other words, there is no longer true distinction between reality and its representation because reality is being determined by artificial human-created representations. To break it down to a little bit more simple um, uh, of a concept, we can go back to the classic chicken and egg scenario. So if in the first order simulation, the chicken coming before the egg was apparent, and if in the second order of simulation, the chicken coming before the egg was available, if not immediately apparent. Now, not only do we not know which comes first, we don't even know what the chicken is or what the egg is. I'm not sure we're aware that there is a chicken in the egg. What we're seeing is a rupture in causality, which is what underlines the manifestation of simulations in the way that it creates an independent, self-contained universe that is far removed from the real universe. You know, in philosophy, 
The first thing they teach you, and I really wish that this was taught in every high school and every college, is critically examine the premises. Most people, when they're making arguments, whether they are political arguments or philosophical arguments or personal arguments, start somewhere in the middle or the end of the logical chain of arguments. And it's usually based on emotion or experience, you know, common sense, I think, you know, in quotes, kind of falls into this category. Examine the premises. The problem is, in a global capitalist society where everything is hyper-specialized, where very few people are directly connected to their livelihood and don't have filters because even subsistence farmers in third world countries are trying to get cell phones, other materialist products, just like everybody else, even if they farm, even if they hunt, and even if they may be slightly closer to nature, they're inevitably drawn into the whirlpool of modern global capitalism and just this bloated but unbreachable economic leviathan that, as I talked about before, is kind of the singularity of economics. It's self-sustaining, it's self-perpetuating. Anyone who thinks that Barack Obama or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or some oil prince in Saudi Arabia or some tech genius in Israel is going to have any major impact on it in terms of the long-term results. It's a problematic view, to say the least, and I think that's pretty obvious. So you can buy into Baudrillard's simulation scenario. The central idea is that it is a simulation, and it's probably not a direct simulation. A fun exercise I like to do is count the levels of separation between you and any like major human necessity. So take food. These days, with food sourcing and organics and stuff, we hope that that link is us to the supermarket, to the delivery guy, to the farm. That's not too bad. Problem is, we also haven't included all the links attached to the farm itself in terms of fertilizer and supplies and tractors and gasoline and supporting those families. So even food these days, which people are really, really concerned with, and I think that's a good trend overall, but we're still very disconnected from it. Um, when I lived in Botswana in college, quick side note, it was the first time I'd ever seen animals slaughtered and, you know, skinned and, and cooked from scratch. And uh, it really changed my perspective on things. Um, I have a friend who is a vegetarian, but uh, will occasionally, um, very occasionally go on a, a hunt and will only do so if they eat the animal. And if he's hunting specifically to eat the animal, 
then he'll eat it. And that's the only time he'll eat meat. Now, I think that's a little weird, but that is an attempt by him, either consciously or subconsciously. And knowing my friend, it is highly conscious because he's a ridiculously smart dude. But it certainly gave me an appreciation of putting that into my body. And, you know, we really go out of our way to not face the facts of nature. I always laugh that in the United States, when you order shrimp or um, prawns or anything like that, they mostly, unless it's a really authentic restaurant, cut off the heads. And in Europe and most other countries, including South Africa and Mozambique, which have amazing seafood from the Indian Ocean. These jumbo prawns that are, you know, they look like they're a foot long when you first see them. No one's cutting those heads off. And not to really disgust anyone here, but the reality is, you know, anyone who's had lobster who really gets into it, those heads are pretty... um, I don't know if tasty is the word, but it's certainly a different experience than eating the rest of the animal. And I don't know if it's because my mom's a vet and I grew up seeing animals getting sliced up or just kind of lived in a rural area where we had goats and cows next door. And I don't know what it is, but as I get older, I find myself being more mindful of what I'm eating. And I don't think it's healthy that I think even most non-vegetarians, omnivores, I guess you would say, even most people who eat meat don't like to really think about how it got from point A to point, you know, G or whatever, from running around on the farm to being a cooked piece of flesh. And so I I just don't really have a problem with that connection. I think if you're going to be a person who eats meat, you just kind of need to come to terms with that. And if you can't, then, you know, perhaps you should consider uh, joining the ranks of vegetarians. In fact, I think we probably should all join the ranks of vegetarians, but that is a separate issue. You know, seeing animals suffer you know, crushes me like it does so many people. And I think, as a quick side note there, that that whole impulse, the experience when you go to a movie and people are getting gunned down left and right, but then, you know, Will Smith's dog dies in I Am Legend and we're just crestfallen. And our love for our pets and sort of pet culture in our society says a lot about our desires to reconnect with our roots vis-a-vis nature. Even if many of us don't realize the connections that are going on. And I think it's a very good thing. Um, Obviously, people go kind of crazy with their animals, but I think that's mostly a a healthy sign um, that people are still attached and that there is even a thing as animal rights movements, I think is very important and a good sign there. But this is a simple but disturbing exercise where you say, okay, let's take anyone's one ideology. So let's look at animal rights people. If everything they wanted could just happen tomorrow in sort of a unanimous 
decision by all mankind that we're going to free all the animals. What happens to all the cows? You know, they're going to all die eventually anyways, as are the chickens. And, you know, if we stop spaying and neutering our dogs and cats, we'd see what would happen with that. In terms of animals, kind of quote-unquote in nature, uh, one of the main things I studied in Botswana was the fact that animals in Botswana, in wilderness areas, who were being protected by the government-slash-safari industry for safari trips were really destructive forces on local people because it was now against the law, or is against the law, to shoot lions or elephants or anything like that without a permit. The lions were eating their animals, their cows and their chickens, and the elephants were stomping on their crops. And so this major issue that countries like Botswana and, and you know Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa and other countries and other continents where ecotourism is a big thing is how to balance those two. But you see that the dynamics of this, even though it nominally concerns animals, is really all about people. It doesn't really concern the animals. They are secondary consideration. People think elephants are almost extinct. I can tell you, they are not almost extinct. Southern Africa, there are hundreds of thousands of elephants, and they need to be culled, just like deers in the northeast of America, from a practical standpoint, need to be culled. And it's a situation where both ways, it doesn't matter because it's all about people. If we cull them, it's because they're interfering with suburbanization essentially and they're interfering with you know our lives in inconvenient ways even if it's just eating flowers although as someone who suffered from Lyme disease over a long period of time I can tell you that an excess of deer is a huge health hazard but there are a lot of environmentalists that are pro-culling that think that the animal's quality of life and long-term viability actually benefits from selective, humane culling. Even if we go the other way, we go the hyper-environmentalist way, and we say, well, it's inhuman to kill them, and that may not be practical. It's still coming from a moral or ethical basis. The ethics of certain branches and ideologies of animal rights is based on certain interpretation of both science and a kind of moral code, but like all moral codes, is subject to interpretation. And this is a case where, when it comes to animal rights, yes, you can claim a moral high ground by taking an extreme view of the lengths that we should go to essentially treat animals like humans, despite evidence to the contrary, that sort of permissive or overly permissive behavior is harmful for both humans and animals. And morals and ethics are human things. And, you know, whether it's driven by guilt or whatever, it's still a human-driven thing. And so we're really stuck because even if we wanted to touch real reality in this world... 
not talking about religious metaphysics of heaven or, you know, nirvana or whatever. I can't speak to that personally. I mean, I have my own beliefs about it. But generally speaking, people need to think that whatever they're doing is real. Because going back to the existential philosophers, um, Sartre and Camus and company, they truly believed in an almost nihilistic sense that there was no inherent meaning in our world and in our lives. But the, I guess, cautiously optimistic side of their message was that we are equipped to create such meaning, to create such a sense of purpose. But I think the reason philosophers like Baudrillard and other quote-unquote post-existential philosophers came along is that they realized that while it was not the intent of Sartre and his ilk to do this, in theory, you could use existentialist philosophy to justify not really trying to create major change on a mass societal level and just focus on the selfish pursuit of creating personal meaning. And that, in a way, while existentialist philosophy at the time and for a while after was considered very rebellious, revolutionary, even heretical (laughs) by some people, both religious and non-religious, because of its radical message, that the existentialist philosophers, while posturing as revolutionaries and were in some ways revolutionaries, the notion of, I'm going to create meaning for my life, world be damned, is really the underpinning of the, you know, post-internet 21st century version of individualism because people have given up on even thinking about ways for major change. And I'm not a revolutionary in the sense of uprising. I still, for the most part, subscribe to the idea that true real change happens somewhat slowly through the corridors of whatever system or systems are set up. So I'm never one to call for an uprising, although it may come to that in the near future. I hope not. But I just wonder if there is a way to productively look at these issues without totally alienating ourselves. And that's what the simulation theory of Baudrillard really is talking about. It has a multi-pronged effect. It's not just removing us from reality. But it's creating a situation where the examination of that removal from reality causes great anxiety and stress, even to the smartest and strongest people, often to the smartest, strongest people, um, because they're so sensitive to it. And so we find political causes and social causes that I don't want to call small because they're important and they're meaningful, and they genuinely, when they're the right causes and the right people, do help people on a day-to-day basis. But it's pretty interesting that we're supposedly getting a lot smarter, 
I think people think we're getting wiser, although I, I don't think that's the case at all. And I think actually simulation and wisdom kind of go in different directions. I found that people in, in pretty basic cultures um, often have more wisdom because they're not in multiple simulation removal from real life. In real life, is Darwinism, and no one wants to talk about that. And I can't blame them. It's pretty ugly. And so, to kind of slowly circle back here to Bizzlecast number one, where we talked about post-consumerism as the stage in economic development where buying things is so central to daily life and is so easy that we don't sense the greater forces around us. I have plenty of podcasts in the future (laughs) to cover a lot of this territory because I basically oriented my personal philosophy major as an undergraduate to the following thought, which is that Christianity and creating a capital R real that was spiritual and otherworldly, not of this world, effectively creates materialism because it is dualism, right? It's one of the oldest arguments in philosophy and religion, monism versus dualism. And Christianity is a dualistic philosophy, or I should say the modern Western philosophies that derive from Christianity are generally dualistic. There's the spirit, which is God and Jesus and heaven, and then there's the body or the material, which is the crass material world. And so with Christianity, there's a way out. There's no horror. There's no terrifying earthly scenario that will change that if you're a good person and you believe in Jesus or whatever, you'll still end up in heaven. Whereas Eastern religions, uh, especially Buddhism and Taoism, which I talk about a lot, uh, mostly because they're the Eastern religions I'm most familiar with and also that I identify the most with. So if my initial thought was about the harmful nature of Western philosophical dualism, Because by definition, it creates a second substance or reality that is purely materialistic, thereby separating the spiritual from the material in a way that makes the material both less real and less meaningful. But Buddhism and Taoism especially are very, very, very monistic. There is not a truly real difference between what we would consider physical and material and what we would consider spiritual or otherworldly. They are essentially made of the same stuff. There's no real separation between the heavens and people and nature and spirit. They're all just ideas that are symbolic to create meaning and to create understanding, but that ultimately it's all one. From a Tao standpoint, for example, trying to create a meaningful life separate from the material world or 
apparently separate from the material world, is really just lying to ourselves. And it's a totally human reaction. And it's the society that we grew up in. And so that's how we see things. But if we just step back from everything, from Christian philosophy to existentialism, I'm not saying we should all become Taoist monks, though I do think that would solve a lot of problems personally. However, seeing what we call real life, which is like our relationships and who we are and what we do and what we want and what our goals are and what our hopes and dreams are, separating that from the materialist, consumerist day-to-day is just making the problem worse. And again, I don't know if there's really a way out that's backwards. A topic I, I definitely want to talk about soon, I might even do it as the next podcast, is the idea that we're so far technologically advanced. The only way that we're going to move past the impending environmental and technological disasters is to improve science even more, but just improve it in such a way that it's geared towards, you know, saving our asses, basically, Um, a more environmentalist kind of science. And the more I look at things, I hate to only have one option. Um, And for a long time, I held on to the notion that, well, we could push forward with science and hope that it saves us, or maybe we scale back. But it just doesn't seem like scaling back is a possibility. Again, even if we all woke up tomorrow and wanted to scale back, I don't think anyone would know how to, where to start, where to go, how to do it. This is a little bit of a tough podcast because I'm really tackling a lot of personal things as well here, but I think you all can relate to it. And I always find myself just going back to Socrates, who really had no philosophy. I mean, he was the ultimate kind of fool in in the Shakespearean sense. He was just the guy who asked why. He is that annoying kid who asks a question and then someone answers and he just says why. And they try and explain more. Says why. And the parent keeps explaining and the kid just says why, 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 why. And, you know, I think from a a mythological standpoint that essential childlikeness to Socrates is what makes him so appealing, but also the simplicity, which is the first step to knowledge is to acknowledge that you don't know anything. And the more you think you know, the less you actually know. And that's still really a radical thought in this day and age. Because I think, like with Taoism, and and this is One of the reasons I really like Socrates is that, in early Plato, is that it's kind of similar to Taoism in this sense, that there's a lot of paradoxes involved. And by acknowledging that I don't know anything, and that's the first step to knowledge, does not mean that knowledge doesn't exist. Doesn't mean that answers can't be found. It just meant that they need to be constantly analyzed and examined critically, very critically, but even more important, 
that they are conditional existences. To put it more directly, that knowledge is a conditional existence. Wisdom is what Socrates had. Wisdom is knowing that you don't know. Knowledge is for use. But we have a hierarchy of knowledge that follows the exact parallel track of evolution and progress, technological and intellectual development. And if you were just to apply basic philosophical method, one of the keys of logic in the scientific sense of deductive logic is that the fewer variables you have, the easier it is to attain a solution or a truth, even if it's a conditional truth. Um, and anyone who studies math or science knows this as well. The more variables you add, the less certainty there is. The more complexity there is, the more variables there are, the less certainty there is. And so while Socrates and the Taoists were not after certainties, they were after a certain level of simplicity because Socrates believed that you could create a real civilization, but that if you created it in the image of trying to be as simple and truthful and kind of tangible as possible, in Baudrillard's term, to not have multiple levels of simulation, to maybe stay in that first level where you have symbolism and spiritualism, but you don't disconnect your human experience from everything else that's going on. That that is at least something we could maybe strive for, at least starting on a small level. Um, and, you know, I think critical thinking, to kind of bring it back down to earth, teaching critical thinking does not seem to be a priority of schools in general. And it's not surprising because schools represent the society, and I don't think our society wants to question. There's just too many disturbing answers, and it's sort of like when you're in a relationship and you start with some small lies in the relationship, nothing too harmful, you know, you say you were here and you weren't there, and then the lies kind of get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and then you're stuck in a situation where you feel horrible about the lies, but there's no way of explaining it without untangling how um, deep and complicated the lies get. And so you're stuck between just horrible guilt and paralysis or telling the person and probably getting dumped or at least facing a major, major crisis. And I think we are in such a relationship with our society. And the lies just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's essentially what the simulation is. A simulation is a lie, not in the sense of being not true, but it's a lie in the sense of distorting kind of the fabric of reality. And that's the first thing that needs to go. Um, I don't know if this sort of major change is possible, but I do know that critically thinking about our place in reality, what is reality, are we fine being fully immersed in a simulation that's essentially 
playing a video game where you're playing a video game and in that video game you're playing a video game and maybe in that one you're also playing a video game but I don't really think that's gonna happen and I think that even though people aren't reading nausea and the stranger it's pretty much how individualistic individuals in our society are operating and I don't care if you are really liberal or really conservative and this is the one issue that liberals and conservatives, for the most part, completely agree on, but will never admit, is this sense of radical individualism. Oh my god, I have to dress the way I want to dress. Oh my god, I have to live the exact life I want to live. And if I have to make these compromises, then, well, if I limit my compromises, then, you know, I won't be as bad as the next person who's really compromising. And it's all really the same thing. Um, the most psychologically well-adjusted people I ever met were my host family in a small farming village called Renaka in Botswana, which is about an hour, hour and a half outside of the capital of Khabarone aka Gabs, and no one knew where one family separated and another began. And this creates, through a structure of hyper-communalism, a support system that includes dozens or even hundreds of people. It's almost infinite in nature. And while the lack of privacy and individualism is a tough adjustment if you're not used to that society. You can see the benefits that even people who are really mentally or physically ill always seem to find a place. Someone is always taking care of them. They're being fed. They're being cared for. They are getting attention. No one is ignored or falling through the cracks unless they try really, really hard to do so. And I know a lot of my friends have had significant experience in developing world countries and have probably seen this as well. And it's interesting that we're willing to acknowledge how kind of psychologically healthy that lifestyle is, but because they're poor, <laughs> we, we just assume, well, that's not really feasible, you know, because I'm not giving up my shower and I'm not giving up this and I'm not giving up that. But I do think there's an answer. And that answer is a philosophical work that I came across randomly in Botswana. We had a tiny little library in the um, school office, and there was this torn-up book that almost fell apart called Eco-Philosophy by Henrik Skolomowski. He's a Polish philosopher who's been a professor at University of Michigan for decades. He's now an emeritus professor. And he wrote a little book back in the early 80s, I believe, called Eco-Philosophy, which we've heard plenty of environmental philosophies before, but he specifically called it Eco-Philosophy. And I think this will be a good place to end up on a little bit of a more positive note, because I definitely want to talk about Eco-Philosophy and do a full podcast about it. It's a small little book. It basically presents an extremely convincing but highly simple solution or at least analysis of how rededicating ourselves to the environment but more broadly the ecology of the planet 
will solve so many of our problems. It won't just solve running out of fossil fuels. It's going to solve psychological problems. It's going to solve mental illness. It's going to solve overpopulation. And it really comes down to um, not understanding the environment just on its own terms, but that we've sort of learned the wrong lessons from our exploitation of the environment. We thought the environment needed to be exploited, that it was there for us to exploit, and that was going to make our life better, and that whether you believe in God or just, you know, evolution and Darwinism, that there's a logical reason why those resources are there. We are meant to use it, and that's how it's supposed to work. Skolmowski takes a different tack. Just to leave you with a little nugget about it, the idea is that there is an aesthetic commodity that is just not been recognized when it comes to nature and the planet and the environment. That we are happiest and function best in environments that feel and look and smell and sound like the environments that we grew up in, in the savannah, in Africa. We respond to open skies, unobstructed. We respond to being able to see long distances in nature. That we respond to circles and spirals which occur constantly in nature. But while we build all our buildings for functionalist reasons and squares and rectangles and triangles and hexagonal shapes, those don't appear in nature for the most part. And although it may seem crazy, those angular shapes and the entire artificial environment contained within them is actually making us unhappy. Or at least is not providing the circumstances to maximize happiness, which spaces and aesthetics have clearly been shown to do. And there's some pretty basic psychological studies that have shown that patients who are um, healing from long-term health problems in a room with curves heal substantially faster than patients in square rooms with no windows. And... We can eat all the organic food we want. We can do all the yoga that we want. These are holding actions that do have a positive effect, but have an even more positive effect from a symbolic standpoint. By eating organic foods, yes, we're getting healthier, but the bigger impact is that we think we're getting healthier, or more broadly, we think we're getting better. And I do not hold to this. <laughs> I'm not sure that being better is really a noble goal. I think being happier is a noble goal, or at least being more in equilibrium. And again, as much as I wanted to believe it for so much of my life up until now, that the return to nature scenario had any feasibility whatsoever, it just seems impossible. And so I'm on board with let's get alternative energy and, you know, desalination and all these things going ASAP before we run out of food, water, and so forth. But that doesn't change the central equation, which is that we need to 
radically reassess our relationship to the environment directly. These simulations make it really tough, seemingly impossible. We're so many steps removed, but we can do it. And young people are trying to go to farms, they travel to developing countries, spend a lot of time in nature. I think these are really good first steps, but it needs to be accelerated. I guess I'll just leave you on the thought that with all of the stuff that I've talked about and with all of these ideas that have gone on and with everything else going on in my brain, but I look at Skolomowski's eco-philosophy and he actually did release a tiny little pamphlet later called Eco-Religion, which um, I don't think fully realized his vision, but essentially... I think if you look at history, the only major force that has had any chance of battling economics, even briefly, is religion. Now, religion has often been used for economic reasons. The Crusades is the obvious example. People actually think European imperialism and colonialism was highly motivated by religion in the church. And there's some truth to that, um, although I think careful study has shown that um, the economic reasons were pretty powerful and independent on their own. And the record of religions, obviously, in developing world countries is very mixed, but it, it's not all horrible. In fact, in some African countries, for example, um, religion was the only barrier of any kind of ethical approach to the imperialist enterprise. I mean, Botswana was the only African country that was never colonized, even though they had diamonds. Oh, they pretend like they didn't know they had diamonds, but they knew they had diamonds. And the reason was, people of Botswana, smartly... I think, converted to Christianity almost immediately upon the British arrival. Even though at the time, there's clear evidence that not everyone in Botswana was immediately on board to give up their traditions. Although my experience in Botswana pretty much bore out that a lot of the pre-Christian traditions have been preserved and either operate parallel to the Christian infrastructure or have merged and become symbiotic with the Christian presence that's there. So that they were a protectorate. They were just a road between Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and South Africa. And every time Britain wanted to bring Botswana into greater control, the leaders of Botswana, who were all practicing Christians, appealed to the Church of England, and the Church of England really exerted a lot of force um, on the British government to kind of leave them alone. And then coincidentally, the year after Botswana became independent in 60, I don't know, 1 or 62, 63, they discovered the largest cache of gemstone quality diamonds on the planet. Um, I don't think the British were that stupid. And that is an isolated example where religion did play a fairly significant positive force um, in the developing world. But the, the real idea here is that religion is the only thing 
other than economics that can move mountains. And I consider myself an agnostic. I have plenty of friends who are atheists. Um, I have some friends who are religious. I have some friends who believe in God, but aren't particularly religious. I'm pretty sympathetic to all of those points of view. I don't want to say I'm least sympathetic to atheism, because I, I get where it comes from, from a scientific standpoint. I just am not a believer in definitive ideas, and that applies to true believers of religion, and to a certain extent it applies to atheism. But I think there are components about religion that could move masses in a way that nothing else really could. And I don't think, and this is me being optimist, I don't think it has to be an old school religion in the sense of monolithic hierarchy. I think you can have a decentralized religion, and I think that religion needs to be based around the earth and realizing ultimately that the earth is one organism and that we are to the earth as all the microorganisms are to our body. And if we realize that basic point, then everything else kind of flows smoothly from there. Because the true reality, which is the reality of pure physical existence in nature, in a universe with laws, then we can cut out all of these simulations, or at least many of them, or perhaps at least the most harmful, and connected directly to the source of truth, which is the earth and the universe. Many truths that we seek will become self-evident through that relationship and through that new paradigm, that new frame of thinking. And so I'll leave you with that for now. This will end Bizzlecast episode two, and I think it seems like I should probably continue with these environmental themes in the next podcast or podcast shortly to come, because it's clearly the most relevant issue, and I really only scratched the surface here. So I hope you've enjoyed it, and I will see you next time. Bizzle out.